Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 181, recorded October 9th, 2014. Taking a break from Marvel for an episode and catching up on the going-ons with the Chris Pine Kirk. Yep, over at IDW Land. Yes, so this is uh, ongoing 33 through 35. Right, so two-parter we start off with, Lost Apollo, part one and two. Then from there we start off the big, was it six-parter? Six-parter. Six-parter story arc with Q, oddly enough. Crazy. Wacky. How can Q be there? I don't know. But the wacky thing is, not only is Q interacting with our reboot, Kirk, Spock, etc., but he's also interacting with Deep Space Nine folks? Come on. What's going on? Right. Yeah, I, hope, I, was, uh, I, I hope I didn't ruin anything for anybody. But Yeah, well, it is the last page of the comic, so... Yes. And if you look at the next comic covers, you pretty much know. So when I first heard that, I thought that, you know, it was going to kind of dive into all the different timelines, you know, franchises. Mm -hmm. But it looks like all six issues are going to be with Deep Space Nine, so... And I think that's good, because there's plenty of characters. Uh, One of the... I think it's the third issue, maybe it's the second one, but they show Kira Norese on the cover. Mm -hmm. That's great. I always like Kira. And uh, she's in some kind of... uh, Amelia Earhart kind of outfit and shooting her phaser, and it's pretty cool. I think that's great. There's plenty of characters, plenty of stuff to mine with Deep Space Nine. Sure. But if I was going to, and I guess you're probably going to know where I'm going to go with this, but if I was going to pick, <laughs> <laughs> I I was might. pick another Star Trek franchise to start diving into, I would have liked to see Chris Pine's Kirk go back in time uh-huh. and, and have some sort of interaction with the NX-01 Enterprise. Exactly. Just so that you can kind of have... Because I love that Trouble, Captain Archer. Troubles, or the Trials and Tribulations, whatever that Deep Space Nine episode where they go to Trials and Tribulations episode. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see kind of the reverse of that, but you know, with, with Chris Pine going to Captain Archer timeline. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. There, there would be a, you know... There would be some neat storylines you could do there. Well, nothing says that won't happen eventually. But right. not in these. But Deep Space Nine is one of my favorite Star Trek franchises, so right. I'm good. Be happy. Be happy. But before we get there, shall we start with Lost Apollo? Well, before we do, I have a question about Lost Apollo. Shoot. I, is it at all based on an episode? I do not believe so. But okay, actually... I- This was going to be a comment of mine, but I would say if it's based on any episode, I would say it's based on an episode of I Dream of Genie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't wait to hear about that then. Uh, Okay. Okay. Uh, No, I don't think it's based on on an episode. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, I I like the issues. It's just... Right. Yeah, I didn't think so either, but I, I wasn't sure, so that's why I was asking. No, I don't think so. Okay. 
Okay, so I will be doing uh, the first issue, Lost Apollo, Part 1, which is part of uh, issue number 33. Published date is May 2014. Creative writer is Mike Johnson. Story consultant, Roberto Orsi. Pencils, Joe Caroni. Inks, Joe Caroni. Victor Moya. And Rob Doan. Colors, John Rausch. Letterer, Neil Yataki. Editor, Sarah Gados. Cover A features Spock with his phaser raised, dominating the center. Neon-colored graphics that look a little like gears partially obscure him to the right. On the bottom is a barren desert planet surface with a five-person landing party materializing. The text, Lost Apollo, Part 1 of 2, is at the very bottom of the cover. Art by Joe Caroni and colors by Brian Miller. Cover B is a photo cover with Kirk speaking over a communicator. The scene is Cocoa Beach, Florida, March 31, 1970. A man is pulling up into the driveway of a single-level home. His name is Major Anthony Nelson... Ooh, well, sorry, wrong TV series. The man enters, calling Tabitha his pregnant wife's name. She responds, calling him Steve. She tells her they want him for Apollo. Steve is a NASA astronaut. She says she is happy for him and that he will go to the moon. Steve says he won't be going to the moon and hesitates giving her any more specifics due to security. He finally tells her that he will be going where nobody's gone before. 291 years later, the Enterprise is in orbit around Heinrichs V. Kirk is assembling an away team, mostly made up of science personnel, to check out this new planet that is bursting with life. Sulu was not initially included, but wants to go real bad, and Dr. Marcus's intervention helps make it happen. Spock suggests to Kirk that the called-for level of exploration could take place from orbit. Kirk says that would be no fun, and presses on to the transporter room. Kirk and the rest of his five-person landing party complete transport in their protective suits and are amazed at the sights of this planet that is bursting with life. Huge trees that look more like stalagmites coming up from the ground. Greenery everywhere. Large flying creatures in the distance are the first non-plant life forms they spot. They remove their helmets after they confirm the air is breathable. They strike out following tricorder readings of interesting life forms. A herd of pink and purple ostrich-like creatures with faces that look like flowers passes them as if they are in a big hurry. The two security officers are on the lookout for trouble, but Dr. Marcus, and in particular Sulu, are quite taken with the place and want to continue studying for as long as practical. Mr. Kai, the green Martian manhunter-looking security officer, picks up metal on his tricorder. The presence of metal in paradise is a mystery that the team investigates. The readings lead them to a cave, whose vile smell encourages the team to put their helmets on and engage life support. The floor of the cave is littered with bones and rotting. The home of a predator, perhaps? They venture inside, with helmet lights illuminating the way and phasers drawn. Kai spots a broken circuit board among the animal remains and says someone has been here before them. Dr. Marcus says she is picking up traces of human DNA. It has slight variations from normal DNA, but it's definitely human. 
Sulu finds a plastic bag sealed up with a piece of paper inside of it. Kirk opens it and finds a child's drawing of an old-fashioned chemical propellant rocket. The letters NASA are on the outside. Through a window in the rocket is a smiling stick figure waving. An arrow pointing to the stick figure has the word Daddy next to it. Kirk is shocked. They leave the cave. Kirk calls the ship for a beam-out, but changes his mind when Sulu discovers his tricorder is gone. He spots a small and apparently clever marsupial-looking animal, has it, and is climbing up a tree. He runs off after it. The rest follow Sulu, but lose him. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Uhura briefs Spock on the captain's call for an additional science team and security prior to losing contact. Ohura takes the con, and Spock takes a security detail and beams down to the first landing party's last known coordinates. Spock's party is armed with phaser rifles, and comms with the ship are constantly open. They are ready for trouble. A security officer reports his tricorders picking up faint suit beacons. They follow the signals until Sulu comes out of the bush. He says he left the rest of the team to recover his tricorder, which he did manage to do, but he has not seen the others since. Sulu says he heard something big and loud and angry. They follow the suit beacons and find Kai and Zara. Kai is out cold with significant suit damage, and Zara is just recovering from being unconscious. Zara says she did not see what attacked them due to its speed. They hear a mighty roar and assume a defensive circular formation, with phaser rifles set to maximum stun and pointed outward. The source of the roaring comes into view. It's a monstrous biped that is a light red in color. Pointed ears, five eyes, and a huge toothy mouth with saliva dripping from it. In each of its clawed hands is a member of the landing party, Kirk and Dr. Marcus. To be continued. That is one nasty looking beast. It's very nasty looking. It almost looks nightmarish. Right. But I must say, it's a little also kind of mm, comic bookish. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It's got that red, pinky kind of hot pink color, which is, seems kind of... Okay, it's an alien planet, who knows? But, you know, you just don't see creatures like that too much on Earth. Right. And I'm just glad he has, you know, a lot of uh, hair in his mid-region to cover up any type of uh, naughty bits. <laughs> Yes, yes, the naughty bits are covered. Whew. Rest assured. I just think it's funny that he's all scaly except for just a few key spots. Exactly. Well, we want this to be a PG-13 comic. Right. Yeah, so who is that creature? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Could it have eaten the astronaut Steve we met earlier? Well, how did Steve or what? get there? Good darn question. I mean, what makes with, you think Steve's there? Because of the picture? With 1970s technology? Well, somehow his space capsule got there. Oh, that's right. Mm. So. And his, that picture survived all that time inside of something called plastic. <laughs> My gosh, we haven't used that in a hundred years. <laughs> or whatever. Since before the invention of warp drive. There you go. And so that really makes me want to go pull out uh, Star Trek First Contact and see if I can see any plastic in those scenes. 
Yeah. Well, uh-huh. I think very possible. Right. So I wonder what they use instead. I mean, we know they've got transtators. So <laughs> what, did, what did they develop that replaced plastic? Because it's pretty ubiquitous these days. Right. And, you know, those, those little cards that Kurt kept pulling in and out of those computers. Exactly. In the original show. Right. I mean, they're either made out of wood or they're made out of plastic. <laughs> I think we've probably painted wood, quite frankly. But they kind of look plasticky, yes. So is the big red guy like Steve's pet or something? That takes care of the home base? Or what? Maybe, yeah, like an attack dog? Um, yes. A big dangerous one. Mm. Tis, tis a mystery. Looks like a five-eyed wolf. Uh, yeah, kind of. It, it has a very long snout, yes. Like like a dog, a canine. Or a, a wolf. Or kind of like a werewolf. A, a werewolf, right. So I gotta say, in the opening pages of this, where... Mm-hmm. Light brown colored haired guy is driving up in a convertible to a single story home in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and he's an astronaut, and quite frankly, he even looks just a little bit like Larry Hagman. I just could not help it but get a I Dream of Genie vibe. Huh. And then and then I got the Tabitha vibe. Well, because the wife's name is Tabitha, then I got a bewitched vibe. Right, because as everybody listening knows, Tabitha was bewitched, bewitch's the daughter. daughter. Exactly. Samantha's Samantha's daughter. daughter. Exactly. Who also became a witch and went on to a very successful TV run. A very short run. Unsuccessful. Oh, w- oh it was short? I thought it was on for years. No? Okay. Tabitha, I thought it was only on for like one season. Oh. It th- did not have the legs that Bewitched had. Oh, okay. I, I thought, Okay. I might be wrong. I don't know. Don't, don't I always thought there was on. one with this. Uh, w- w- they had a, a blonde actress, and it was like kind of lame humor, but it was like you, 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 no one could ever be offended by it. I thought it was Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Oh, Sabrina. I was thinking of Sabrina. Okay. Yeah, Sabrina was based on the Archie comic character, Sabrina. Oh, okay. Well, I got that totally wrong. Yeah, you did. And that lasted oh my God. for a long time. Yeah, I thought that was on forever. Anyway, so I think he looks a little just, – just, I think whoever was writing this or drawing it, maybe both, I think they just had a little 60s TV comedy vibe or something going. Eh, maybe. I, I thought he looked like um, – see, I thought he kind of looked like the astronaut that, um, that Kirk and them beam up to the, to the Enterprise when they go back in time when they weren't supposed to. Uh, I forgot the name of that episode. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. They put the tractor beams on the fighter jet, and it ends yeah, up crushing Yeah, and then they it. end up fixing it by binging him in the past to his own body. And yeah. I do not like the resolution to that story. I didn't like that part, but I liked the rest of the episode. Right. I, thought it was I did, too. Yeah. So I was thinking, oh, it's that guy. This is, this is going to kind of be their uh, version of, of that story, but uh, I don't think that's where they're going with it at this mm, point. No. And that guy was, a, uh, was an Air Force fighter pilot right yeah i knew that it wasn't exactly the same branch right. but they were both pilots they're both gotcha they gotcha. both look the same or at least i thought similar similar so i gotta ask the shoulder patches on the new uniforms so or the shoulder pads i should say so they got new uniforms now i mean maybe not completely new uniforms but one thing that was kind of cool about a lot of the earlier issues is they had Reasonably consistent uniforms when they were going on away missions where they needed some some more protection. 
And this one, eh, the uniforms more or less look similar, but there are changes, and the biggest change are the football uh, shoulder pads. Right. I'm not crazy about them. You don't like them? I don't like them. Eh, they don't well, are, are they supposed to be tackling people? I, hey, I just don't know why they're there. Know? I don't know why they're there. Well, maybe that's where their oxygen tank is and stuff. <laughs> that is an interesting point, because there's no oxygen tanks. But obviously the helmet has life support of some kind. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't want to look like they're running around in um, wetsuits. Nah. Yeah, well. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of these helmets because uh, half the time I didn't know who some of the people were. Like, oh. There was a few times when I thought it was Kirk and it was Sulu. Mm-hmm. And, uh, True. You know, they're, Zara, they're, yeah, yeah. Zara has her hair in her eyes every once in a while, so you can kind of figure out who she is. Right. And then, of course, Martian Manhunter, he's kind of hard to miss. Yeah, Lieutenant Kai. Kai, yeah. Not as not to be confused with Kai Wynn, who we'll see probably no. in the next couple of issues. Mm, good point. Good point. And then when they meet, it'll be like, but that's a title, not a person's name. But wait a minute, that's a name, not a title. Confusion right. ensues. It'll be like, Kai, this is Kai, Kai, Kai. Oh, can we name a few more people, Kai, just to keep things straight? Probably no. Good. No. Another thing that's interesting is their phaser rifles. They changed them again? They changed they- them again. They changed them again. Now, that's fine, because quite frankly, I wasn't that crazy about the first phaser rifles they had in the comic book series. Which, of course, the first time, well, you didn't see, I don't, we didn't see phaser rifles in the first one, right? No. In the first movie. And, of course, we saw plenty of them in the second movie. Uh, especially when they were walking Khan around uh, oh, the and, ship. Oh, and Kirk but, also throws one into the propeller of the... Yes, he does. But in this issue, the phaser rifles they're using, again, not exactly the same, but a lot like first contact phaser rifles, which I was very right. surprised about. And they look bigger. They They look pretty weighty in their hands. Yeah, pretty beefy. But if you look at them, you'll notice that they're pretty much... First contact phaser rifles. Only maybe beefier, like you say. Plus, they've also got this blue this blue color on them, which I'm not sure if that's supposed to be glowing or that's just they felt like putting some blue in the uh, blue paint on these things. Right. Blue and silver. But I do like them. They look cool. It looks like they could make a pretty good club if they had to. But uh, those are next-gen phaser rifles. Huh. I did not notice that, but, but now that you, you pointed out, I do know they they had more detail to them than the uh, those original phaser rifles from the Gary Mitchell story. Right, right. Yeah, I do so, like them. So but. since we're talking about the artwork of of the phaser rifles, what do mm-hmm. you think about the artwork in general? I thought it was good. Not my favorite, but I think it's good. I like it, except I don't like the style of having the foreground, the people in super crisp visually, they're crisp, mm-hmm. and then all the background a lot of times is just kind of... Abstract. Yeah, muddled or yeah. muted kind, in some way. Yeah, it's kind of abstract. Yeah. When they're on the jungle planet, it doesn't bother me that much, but when they're on the Enterprise, it really looks... It's really jarring to have you know Spock look like Zachary Quinto, and then the background just be this, um, you know, looks like a f- washed-out photograph or something behind him. 
Right. Good point. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, I really didn't notice that that much. I guess oh, I was really? just kind of I guess I was pretty focused on the uh on the characters. Yeah, look at those bridge scenes. Like any time no, they're on the bridge. I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah, and it gets really bad in the next issue, not not to spoil anything, but there's a scene where um Chekhov is in the foreground and Sulu's in the background, but you can't tell it's Sulu because it's all just this, you know, washed out, muddled, photographic looking thing. Right. So, just an interesting art style that I, I'm not quite used to. Right. But you can say you don't like it if you don't. I didn't say I didn't like it. Okay. If I did have to pick something I didn't like, I don't like the uh, flower-faced ostrich creatures. Oh! That really reminded me of something with <coughs> Gold Key. Yeah, that was kind of weird, wasn't it? I mean, you want to give it another worldly feel to it. Sure. And mission accomplished. <laughs> with with a flower face on some kind of a mammal looking uh life form. But geez, that's it just looks kinda stupid. And it's the pink color like, that you love so much. They do like pink a lot in this. The coloring folks. Heavy on the pinks. And Gold Key was a big fan of pink. Oh, what are you trying to say? I'm just saying. I, I'm just I got saying. a got a gold key vibe here. Oh boy. Mm. Luckily that's the only aspect you're getting a gold key vibe. I hope. Hmm. Hmm. We'll see. <laughs> Anyways, what else you got? Um, I was just wondering how much protection those uh, suits really afford. Because I, I think when they went for the gor- you know, hunting the Gorns, I think they were kind of given the impression that that the suits they had on were like battle suits or something. They had some kind of protection to them. But I just wonder about these, whether it's more, more life support kind of thing as opposed to like a battle suit. I don't know. The, the creature goes through them pretty fast. He's able to rip through them pretty easy, I mean. Exactly, right. So the claw definitely scratches Kai's chest, so that it's very obvious that it's ripped open there. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Good point. Yeah. I mean, I you'd think wondering. those shoulder pads would do more than just... You know. <laughs> That's what Kai needs to do. When the, when the claw comes down, just kind of move your... Your incredibly huge shoulder pads in the way. There you go. Chew on that one, my man. <laughs> but. Yeah. My last comment is that I thought it was pretty, you know, pretty macho of Spock to go down with only two security guys. Hey, we got rifles. We'll take care of business. Yeah, I think I would go down with more. I, I would have, but I'm a wimp, I guess. <laughs> if you got that much problem going on, you know. I just thought it was an interestingly small contingent when they knew there was trouble. Right, yeah. I mean, they don't they don't even have contact to the ship anymore. Or the crew. Yeah. So, uh, or the, the landing party. Right. Right. At least one of the guys had the big manly mustache, so he looked a little bit like Tom Selleck or Burt Reynolds, so that's probably okay. <laughs> that, 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 that counts as three guys right there. I think at least. Especially was, like, Burt Reynolds. Right there. Tom, Tom Selleck was the man for a long time. Yeah, well, eh. I thought Magnum P.I. Was, was a little wimpy, quite frankly. Oh, really? You like your bandit better? Ah! <laughs> the bandit. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, that's it for me. I'm done with that one. Uh, all my, my comments. My last comment is, and it's just a timing of where the word bubble is to what's going on in the picture but when kirk's taking off his helmet and he's asking about the atmosphere Mm -hmm. he's asking for an update on the atmosphere while he's taking it off 
And ah. then she gives him the name and then or the uh, explanation, and he says good, all in the same frame. So, right. You know, if you're just looking at the picture, it looks like he's already taken his helmet off when he'll he's asking for the update. Right. And then she's like, oh, there, I'll be fine. And he's like, whew, good, because I've already breathing it. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> Just like <laughs> Iowa air. Of course, yeah. I didn't know that when I took my helmet off. It does not look anything like Iowa. No. Especially but the Iowa, Iowa that we saw in the movie. He said Iowa air. So. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of greenery when he's driving around in that convertible. And here he is in like a tropical jungle. Right. Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah, it's what the he same said. Thing. That's what he said. It's the same thing. That's what he said. I know. All right, that was it. Anything else? Nothing. All right. Well, then I will get the privilege of doing 34, Lost Apollo Part 2. Good. Tell us what the heck's going on here. Yeah, and we'll figure it out. And then I'll tell you, I didn't want to tell you which episode these this two-parter really reminds me of, because I didn't want to spoil anything. But remind me, that's I want to talk about it afterwards. Okay. All right. So the cover has an unknown male with hazel eyes stands in a Starfleet science uniform. Behind him is a neon sign of the Starfleet swoosh. Superimposed around him are images of a medical screen and a medical icon. And then below this strange man is the Enterprise. At first, I thought it may be a bad picture of McCoy, but because he's wearing a science uniform and not a medical uniform, uh, it's not him, so we don't know who it is exactly. We're back in 1972. Uh, The astronaut from last issue is tucking his daughter into bed. She wishes him good luck on his upcoming mission, and she gives him a picture she drew on some notebook paper. He says he will take it with him. And we see and we see the picture, same one that we saw last issue, shows the rocket ship with a band inside of it and the word daddy and an arrow pointing to the man. So we flash back to the present where the large pink five-eyed monster is tearing apart the away team. The rifles, um, the crew are firing the rifles at maximum stun but to no avail. Eventually the large creature howls and runs off leaving the crew to lick their wounds. Later, the crew are all beamed back to the ship, and Kirk is in sickbay with McCoy. Marcus and Spock contact the pair and request their presence on the bridge. Upon arriving, Marcus shows a hair that she brought back from the creature. She says that it's 99% human. They also talk about the... They also talk about the life on the planet and how it's constantly evolving. Kirk hears all this, and he comes up with an idea. His idea is to beam down to the planet alone, and he's somehow able to talk the entire crew into letting him do this. Once he's down there, he eventually finds the red creature again, and the creature pauses its attack when he sees that Kirk is holding the kid's drawing that they found. The creature pauses long enough for Kirk to request a beam-up, and the creature is beamed into a cargo container aboard the Enterprise. Kirk beams back to the ship, and when he gets to the cargo container, Kirk beams back to the ship just in time to reach the cargo container as the creature stops trying to break free. Scotty, McCoy, Spock, and Kirk all watch as the large pink monster shrinks and changes shape back into that of a human male. 
it seems that the crew has found a space werewolf, and only Kirk was smart enough to see it. They take the man to sickbay, and eventually he wakes. He tells Kirk that he was part of an Apollo mission that actually left from a secret base on the moon. His mission was to test a new type of engine and then return home. He is sad that his daughter has been gone for 300 years and that she would have never known what happened to him. Suddenly, he's gripped in the throes of pain and he passes out. McCoy arrives and scans him and says that he has tumors that are growing and mutating at an alarming rate. Spock and Kirk debate on what to do next. They speculate that if they left him on the planet, he would re-evolve back into the creature, but he would be alive. The other option would be for him to stay human on the ship, but he would die a very quick and painful death. They decide that returning him back to the planet is the most humane way to go. Kirk and McCoy return the unconscious body to the planet. Before he even wakes up, he starts to revert back to the pink creature. They return back to the ship, stating that a medical craft would soon arrive and try to help the man. The creature on the planet finds the picture that his daughter gave him all those years ago, and he gives a slight whimper as he touches the fragile piece of paper. The end. Oh, that's terrible. Space werewolf. Space werewolf, yes. That's, that's about right, yeah. <laughs> All right, so can I tell you what uh, episode I was thinking this reminded me of? Sure. It's actually not an original series episode. It's a Next Generation episode called The Royale. Mm. Oh. Where that... a NASA yeah. a NASA ship crashes on a planet, and then the inhabitants of the planet or whatever recreate a Las Vegas-type setting for him until he died. Right. Which also kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the Cochrane story from the original series. But it didn't it, I mean, it's kind of the same vibe that, that this NASA guy ends up on a weird planet and somebody finds him years and years later. Right. That part. Somebody, <laughs> a, <laughs> uh, a deep space crew find him years later. That part, yes. The fact that he turns into an evolutionary creature or something uh, because of the fast evolutionary whatever's on the planet it's like give me a break and then all he has to do is get out of the away from the planet and its atmosphere and then he changes back to a human um, yes that that hasn't aged at least so far has not aged Come right on. well do we know that he's been there for the 300 years or did did he go forward in time too well i i think because of how he was dying i thought that was age related tumors but I don't. I don't know for sure. Right. I don't know for sure either. I, I think the whole thing was rather ridiculous, to be perfectly frank. But agreed. I, this. I did not care for the uh, werewolf story. No. And by the way, okay. So they built in the six or seventies, sixties, seventies, whatever. Yeah. So they went ahead and built this base on on the far side of the moon, uh, dark mm-hmm. side of the moon. Uh, isn't that something that went on with transformers or something? Yeah. Anyway, there, there so we. So we supposedly did that, and then we constructed this rocket ship with this experimental engine. So, okay, what did he go into a time warp or something? And how did it land on the other side? I, well, they I, said I, that I hate there to was, be a doubter, but... They said there was some landing, um, uh, automated landing... But give me a break. BS in it, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, so this thing was... 
Okay, so it, it went some huge amount of distance and may have gone through time. We're not quite sure, but even if it didn't go through time. So it happens to end up at in a solar system. Mm-hmm. And that and th- their place in the solar system just happens to be by a habitable planet. And then this ship, which is designed to take off and land on the lifeless, low-gravity moon, is able to navigate to the planets never seen before, and then affect a landing on, uh, on a place that has much more atmosphere, so heat shielding and everything would have to be in place, and then it's able to land comfortably on something with mm, Earth-like gravity. Right. It's like, and all that was built into this, 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 this rocket that was really only designed to lift off the moon, take a little jog around the solar system and come back again. I don't know. Right, and and it did all that manually because or automatically because he, he said was out. He he was out. Exactly, he, he was out like a light. It was already landing, and it could have had no contact with mission control to get any kind of automation. And this right. is the six. This is the seventies. You know, 70, so nineteen seventy-two. The level of technology was not incredible back then, as right. far as automated landing systems and things like that. I don't. I don't think. Anyway, it, uh, my main point is it just required a lot of suspended disbelief. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Which, which stories like that could end up being good anyway. Despite that, it could be good. But you start doing that kind of stuff, and you're going to have to overcome <laughs> some uh, some skepticism on my part, mister. Right, yeah, the, the, and and I kept thinking, I was like, all right, so if we had all that in 1970 on the backside of the moon, then how did Khan and them take over? Or, I mean, because we just finished reading the Khan story, so we know that in the 90s, the Earth was in bad shape. Right. I mean, as far as, it wasn't technologically more advanced than what we remember in the 90s, but, right. you know, if we had a whole base on the other side of the moon, you think that we would have some other type of... Technology advanced going. technology that that they didn't show in those <clears throat> comics. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Yeah, it just. I like, well, so what kind of engine is this anyway? I mean, a nuclear. It's supposed what? to be. Well, I know it's nuclear, but <laughs> it is supposed to be warp drive or something. It's like I don't know. It well, just seemed, it's it just better fit, than warp drive because it's got them a nuclear. Lot <sighs> Apparently. Yeah. Yes, that's why I kind of like the idea of it going through some sort of time warp or something like that to account for how far it went. But exactly. no explanation as to how it no. actually did it. And, you know, in some ways, that's okay. In right. some ways, that's okay. Don't even try it because you're going to have a hard time. Uh, but, you know, make sure he's he's out like a light during the trip and I don't know what happened. I guess you don't have to explain it then. <laughs> right. Of course, the amazing thing is he was able to turn back into a human just by being up in orbit. That's amazing. I mean, didn't when the doctor had to take Janeway and Chakotay and turn them back from being huge newts or yeah. lizards or whatever they were? Warp ten mutant creatures, yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, at least he had to do some kind of gene therapy. I mean, this doesn't even need that. They just snap right back. He just right. snaps right back. No problem. Again, I think it's because I don't think it had anything to do with the atmosphere. I think it's because on the ship, 
couldn't see the moon anymore and ah, reverted back to human. There you go. He's a space werewolf. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Good point. Uh, so th- this book had a lot of amazing stuff. Uh, another amazing thing was his daughter. Yeah. She's two years old. Not even two years old. That is a fantastic drawing for a less than two girl. Because <laughs> his wife's pregnant in the first issue, and it says right. it's 1970. This right. says it's 1972. So she's had the baby, and the baby's grown up to what she is now, and she draws really well and writes out words and everything. Yeah. Man, that's amazing. That's an amazing kid. Whew. Totally amazing. Anyway, they're not, they're not too worried about Oh, may, maybe she had a continuity. time warp, too, and she's really, you know, six. Maybe. Well, Doesn't she kind of look six? Yeah, she looks old. Yeah. yeah. yeah well. But she's two. She's two. Yeah, so I guess the last thing I want to say about this one is, if you're going to be... If you have a choice to die a man or continue to live as a beast, a wild beast... What would you want? I mean, would you really want to be running around as a uh, you know, werewolf guy for who knows how long? I don't right. know. I, I'm not so sure I'd want that. Yeah, and his his whole family's gone. Yeah, He'll never get them back. So even right. if he lives and they find a cure for him, he's out of time. Everybody knows he's dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would rather just die, I think, me personally. Yeah, I, it seems to be such a natural decision for Kirk and company, and I just don't think it's a natural decision. Well, yeah, or not as the, much as they said. It's the whole zombie werewolf vampire thing. If you became a monster that's hurting other people, even though you're still alive, do you want that for yourself, or do you want to be somehow stopped? And if that means even killing you, mm-hmm. yeah, and he's. He has no control. He's trying to kill everybody that he sees, so yeah. I, I wouldn't want that for myself. No. Nope. nope. But I'm, I'm glad this is all fictional and that I'll never turn into a werewolf. <laughs> <that dilemma. laughs> Wait, you never know. You never know. You got a lot of living ahead of you, my friend. Yes, but I doubt I turn into a werewolf. Probably not. But you could have a really cool goatee like this werewolf. He does have one. It's 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 out there. He's got a big old soul patch. That's amazing. So this is another example of how when we evolve, we're not going to look like humans anymore. Uh, I guess not, because this is supposed to be a result of evolution, accelerated evolution. Right. So there's been some, a lot of Star Trek stories where they show humans evolving, and usually we turn into, like, spiritual things that don't even have a body anymore for some reason. Right. But uh, here they kind of went the other way. They, we are evolving into something even more primitive and um, monstrous than what we are now. Yeah, which is interesting. But what are you going to do? Or, you know, Chakotay and Janeway. It was Paris and in- Janeway. Oh, it was Paris? Oh, damn it. <laughs> okay, so, but, but they become big newts. So right. were they supposed to be intelligent newts? Yeah, or yeah. Or was it, was it de-evolution? I don't know. That one doesn't make sense. No. That's, well, that's and then if you really want to pick apart evolution stuff, I mean, what about the uh, seventh season of Next Generation where Picard and everybody starts de-evolving? Into oh, that one. Oh, that animals. So. Oh, that was a horrible episode. Yes, it was horrible. That was bad. 
Yes, it was bad. Yeah. Did, did Data save them or something? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah. I just I just want to put it out of my mind. What, that didn't happen. Wasn't Picard like happen. the spider guy or something? Or was I that Barker? It, I, I thought uh, Picard turned into like a lemur or something. A little lemur. A little right, maybe. marsupial thing. Intelligent with big eyes. Yes, because that makes oh, sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Well, at least that makes a little bit more sense than... Yeah, was it was it broccoli that turned into a spider? Anybody's going to turn into a spider, I got to ask about that. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> None of it made sense. No. And then there was what was the other episode where Jordy evolved into a creature that could turn invisible or something? Yeah, I remember that one on that colony thing or whatever. Yeah, and I always thought that was funny because he's a blind guy that could then turn invisible. Yeah, hmm. which just kind of was just kind of fitting. Yeah. And he looked really cool when he didn't have his visor on and he had all that alien glowy makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we're not talking about this issue hardly at all. No, we're not, because there's really not much to say. I don't think. Nope, wasn't a fan. Did, mm. not, did not care for it. No, me neither. Me neither. So they're hoping someday in the future, maybe, a cure could be found, but don't count on it. Yeah, and I don't know what extra information Kirk got, but nothing that they told him about the planet scream out to me. If I take him off the planet, he'll de-evolve. Yeah, that was something. Pull out of your orifice there, Kirk, and let's see if it works. Yeah, lucky for him it did. Exactly. Because there was absolutely nothing to indicate it would. I agree with you. So, so you, you, something is causing evolution to happen well, okay, so you've evolved, right? So you pull him off the planet, he doesn't evolve any further. But he's not going to revert back to human. I don't, I don't, no. I don't whatever. No. The only way I could have ex- accepted that is if they had some evidence of it on themselves. Maybe that hair that she got changes or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, oh, this used to be long, wispy, black, uh, pink right. hair, and now it turned into, you know, nicely groomed brown hair or something like that, you know? Right. But no, it, it's his his shaggy pink hair never changed. Yeah. Uh, Anyhow, one last thing I want to say is when they show the launch from the moon, mm-hmm. and they show the picture of the astronaut inside the space capsule, that kind of looks like a girl in that NASA white uh, spacesuit. Matter of fact, um, I think it looks a little bit like Sandra Bullock. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> No, I, I'm, I'm kidding about the Sandra Bullock part. But that kind of looks like a girl, not like uh, Steve or whatever his name is. Um, well, you only see his eyes and nose, but... And mouth, yeah. But yeah, just, just what you would see out of a, a 1970s era space helmet. Which is not a huge amount, but I'm just saying. That looks like a girl to me. Not like Steve. Yes, it doesn't have the manly features that Steve normally has. Exactly. Manly. Manly Larry Hagman-esque features he does not look like jr he he looks no okay okay but he does look like major nelson i don't think so i think he does i think they were purposely going for that okay (laughs) okay that's all i have to say about this one all right i'm done too cool okay you ready for a new storyline one with that guy that is so cool that he only needs one letter for his name? Who is it? It's Q.
The Q Continuum and the Individual Q. So, issue number 35 is titled The Q Gambit. Published date is July 2014. Writer is Mike Johnston. Story consultant, Roberto Orsi. Art by Tony Shastine. There's nobody listed for colors, at least that I could find. Letterer is Neil Yutaki. And editor is Sarah Gatos. The cover shows the omnipotent Q dominating the upper half of the cover. In his outstretched hands are the heads and shoulders of Kirk, Spock, O'Hara, and McCoy. The issue opens with someone thinking about the events that led up to the Star Trek 2009 reboot movie. The events that were told in the IDW comic series Countdown. The main point being that Spock saved them all. The man thinking these thoughts turns out to be Ambassador Jean-Luc Picard, currently aboard his former ship, the Enterprise-E. He mourns the loss of Spock and orders the temporary room's replicator to produce tea, Earl Grey, hot. Unexpectedly, a familiar voice asks Picard, would it kill him to try chamomile for once? Q appears as young as ever to the aging ambassador who only has wisps of hair behind his ears. He asks Picard how he feels about not being captain of the Enterprise anymore, having that android running things. Picard calls Data the finest captain he has ever known. He asks Q what he wants. Q says he wants to talk about Spock. Q tells Picard that Spock lives in a parallel alternate timeline. Picard is stopped in his tracks, but after some thought tells Q he does not want to hear any more of the alternate timeline. It's best for both timelines to stay separate and events unknown from each other. Q says he just wants Picard to know his friend lives and to seek Picard's counsel. Picard is incredulous. Q says Spock saved his timeline, but then set into motion a set of events that will ultimately doom the new timeline he now inhabits. Picard tells Q to stay out of the affairs of the other timeline. Promise me, Q... Q does not, and tells Picard goodbye, for now. Q vanishes. The scene shifts to the other timeline. Star Trek universe of the 2009 movie. Captain Kirk is recording his log and saying the Enterprise has arrived at a previously unexplored star system called Menzies 216 at the edge of the Alpha Quadrant. They are several months into their five-year mission, and the ship and crew are firing on all cylinders, as Mr. Scott would say. Kirk enters a turbo lift and notices a crewman behind him. It's Q in a red Starfleet uniform. Kirk tries to get his name, but the stranger dodges his questions. As Q gets off on his deck, Q comments on how he likes the design of the Enterprise so much better than the beige look. As the doors close, Kirk says, Beige? with a perplexed look on his face. Kirk departs the lift and steps onto the bridge. Kirk and Spock's discussion about survey of the planet is interrupted by Uhura stating they are receiving a distress call from a Federation civilian ship called the Smallwood. They are under attack. Kirk is perplexed how another Federation ship could be this far out. They are supposed to be the first. Chekhov reports sensors are picking up two Klingon ships, attacking a third. That must be the Smallwood. Kirk orders an intercept course. When the Enterprise arrives, 
It tries to defend the Smallwood, but is attacked by three more Klingon ships that decloak all around her. The crew tries to make some moves, but in the end they are outnumbered and have only one destiny. Ahura states, Smallwood, isn't that Japanese for Kobayashi? Just before the Enterprise explodes in a ball of fire. Pair of hands clap. Kirk finds himself standing on the bridge. A stranger is lounging in the captain's chair, making himself quite comfortable. It's the strange crewman from the turbo lift, but now he's in a gold tunic. It's Q, and he's clapping in appreciation for a fine performance. He points out that Ohura realized what was going on before anyone else did. Kirk calls for security to the bridge. Chekhov reports the Klingon and Federation vessels are gone. Kirk orders a full-spectrum scan. The Klingon ships could be cloaked. Q calls him Jim and tells him to relax. It was just a test. Kirk turns to tell the stranger to shut up with his finger extended, intending to point it into Q's chest, which his finger just goes through it. Spock theorizes that Q is a holographic projection. Q says, logical, but wrong. He snaps his fingers, and Kirk and Q are transported to the outside hull of the Enterprise saucer section. Kirk should be dead, but is not. Q explains to Kirk that he is part of an advanced race of immortal beings that can manipulate time and space as easily as you can change the water in a fishbowl. He tells Kirk he is the fish, in case the analogy wasn't clear enough. They have an argument about Kirk's belief that there is no such thing as a no-one scenario. Kirk says there is always a way. Q says Kirk is a stubborn Starfleet captain and takes him back in time to witness his own death in the antimatter chamber of the Enterprise engineering section. Kirk asks why Q is doing all this. Q says it's because he understands why Kirk does not believe in a no-win scenario, but there most certainly is, and he's going to show Kirk why he's wrong. Q is suddenly gone, and Kirk is back on the bridge. Ahura confirms their visitor is gone. Chekhov tells Kirk it is impossible, but the ship is suddenly on the other side of the Alpha Quadrant. Chekhov says they are close to a 14-planet star system. Kirk explains what Q did to him, and that he challenged Kirk's belief that there are no such things as no-win scenarios. Spock states that if they are not participating in a shared illusion, then it is possible that they have just encountered a being of incredible power. Chekhov reports they are approaching a large structure in space. It has multiple ships around it, but none of them match known ship configurations. Ahura says her attempts to recalibrate ship's chronometers based on the nearest nav beacon has failed. There are none. As the structure comes into visual range, Kirk asks, what is that? Spock says based on Ahura's difficulties, we should be asking not only what is that, but where is that, and when is it? Cut to exterior views, showing the Enterprise is approaching Federation Space Station, Deep Space Nine. To be continued. And there's some Dominion ships on their way. So it looks like, doesn't it? Right. They look like Jem'Hadar ships or something. So this is the alternate timeline's future? Or is Ah. it going to be in the Prime Universe, Deep Space Nine? 
Quite frankly, this completely looks like the Prime Universe. But the problem is, didn't Q say that this set about a string of events that's going to adversely affect the other timeline? Right. That's what I thought. That's what he said. Hmm. And that would make sense that this may not be a Federation outpost. It might be controlled by the Dominion. There's I didn't no... notice that there were no Federation ships around it. Hmm. Nope. Well, I don't think they'll be very welcome. I bet they get blasted. I, I think they look close enough to a Prime Universe Federation ship, that, not to mention uh, some kind of beacon. They'd probably know where they're from. Only, only maybe not when. It comes back to how advanced is this ship, because it looks more advanced than the original Kirk-era Enterprise. True. And supposedly it's bigger, so how much how much bigger is it compared to... I mean, it's obviously bigger than the Defiant. Right, it, it but still bigger. Looks, it, it, but it looks smaller than these Dominion crafts that are coming. Yeah, but the Dominion crafts don't have to be big, because they're nasty. Right, but they look bigger than the Enterprise. Uh, yeah, I mean, quite frankly, the Enterprise looks un- inappropriately small. Quite frankly, the Enterprise is so much bigger than... Well, okay, so it's really bigger than the original Enterprise. However, Enterprise D and Enterprise E is significantly larger than the original Enterprise. Right. right. So... Would this thing would, would would the reboot Enterprise actually be closer to Enterprise E size? I don't think so. Okay, but, but I think it would be still bigger than you know Voyager or any of the other well, smaller crafts. Yeah, I mean I'll agree with that, but definitely definitely bigger than Defiant. But right, yep. okay. Just I don't remember the Def- Dominion crafts being all that much bigger than the Defiant. I guess that's my point. Well, I think they were. I I completely agree with you. The Dominion craft were about the size of the Defiant. Right. Yet here they look huge. They look big. Really big. And maybe that's just... Maybe the Enterprise is actually further beneath them? Further away in the picture? So it's a matter of perspective? True. But I don't think so. Right. It looks like they're on an intercept course. It does. Because if it was just because of distance, then they would be going under and past (laughs) Deep Space Nine. Yeah, so... I guess we'll have to see in the next issue. Interesting theory, though. Interesting hypothesis. That it actually is... So, is the, so this is during the Dominion War, perhaps. Is this during the time period where Cisco and company, the Federation, was kicked out of Deep Space Nine? Or is this truly the future of that reboot time frame? Which we know everybody looks different. I'm sorry, Kirk looks different. Spock looks different, so... No, they look just like the original ones. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Because from the covers, these Deep Space Nine folk we meet look just like the uh, Prime Universe folks. Right. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So maybe we'll see what alternate universe Picard looks like. Ah, uh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe if they go that far. Uh huh. Maybe he'll have like, little tufts of hair behind his ears. Yeah, and that is kind of... I, I kind of referred to it a little bit in the synopsis. But it's kind of weird. Because the way they've got Picard drawn is truly... He's got little tufts of hair behind his ear. Like right right, directly behind the back of his ear. 
Right. And that's it. I know when you get older, you get little tufts of ear, hair coming out <laughs> of your ears, but I've never seen it behind the ear like that. Yeah, I've never seen somebody who's the last of their hair happens to be located behind their ears. I've never seen that. Maybe that's maybe, just the style. Maybe it's a style thing. Maybe it is. We got those stupid soul patches today. Maybe that's a style. You're not a fan of soul patches? I, I think it looks kind of weird. Yeah, mm. I, I guess it looks cool, I, I guess. But I think it's kind of weird. You look like a beatnik or something. You don't have a soul patch, do you? I don't, but okay. I might get one just to spite you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I have a question about something Spock says towards the end of the book. On the second okay. to last page of the book. Okay. Ahura says that she's not able to get into contact with any of the um, beacons, the yeah. nearest time beacon. Time beacon. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. And she says the chronometer is still calculating a precise star date, and then Spock's like, chronometer? Like, he didn't know Enterprise had one? I, I don't understand <laughs> Well, it's enough that she's saying, the time beacon. <laughs> and by the way, I think it's highly unlikely that there are special purpose time beacons. There's probably nav beacons that'll give you lots of different information, of which time is just one of them. Right. So, I don't know. I think she's a little bit specific in what she's calling it. Right. I agree with you. You remember back in the day when there used to be a phone number you could dial and it would tell you what time it was? Yes. I remember that. You think those those phone numbers still exist? I I think they may they think they may exist because there are little old ladies in Des Moines that probably don't have a computer or a cell phone. At the beep, it will be nine twenty three. Exactly, that's right. I used to set my Casio watch to that kind of thing every once in a while. Yeah, I used to call it every once in a while, yeah. just because I needed someone to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> when you lived in Japan. Uh, I think you, by then it was already gone. No. Oh, because everybody okay. had cell phones by then. There you go. Anyways. Uh, uh, so I just thought that was funny that he I, – I get he's saying chronometer, like why are you dealing with the chronometer? Maybe we're in the future. But it just seems like it, he's more asking, we have one of those? <laughs> <laughs> How do you get to that? I, I've kind of wanted to get the time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, you know, obviously they're hitting – the writer is hitting us over the head with the idea that, ooh, time. It's a time thing. It's a, it's, it's a time thing, time, you know, which is like you really don't have to be going overboard like that, Spock. We get it. Do we? I think we do. It's in the future, obviously. Not sure what dimension, though, but we do know it's in the future. Yeah, so when I, when you first told me that they were doing a Deep Space Nine crossover in the future with Q, I was not looking forward to this. But I actually found myself enjoying this one quite a bit. I think the writing's pretty good. I mean, except for little things like overemphasizing the chronometer. Um, <laughs> I think the Picard-Q interaction was very believable. Right. You know, that hit the mark. I mean, that was just like something that could have been lifted right out of an episode. And I think the stakes were interesting. We still don't know what they all are yet, but I thought that was interesting. And and I gotta say, the I think the interactions between Picard and Q were really good. But the interactions so far between uh, Reboot Kirk, Chris Pine Kirk, and Q are kind of I don't know 
a little weak. Oh, really? I kind of liked it. Uh, it's kind of meh for me. Hmm. Well, I, I kind of like that, you know, it, it's not the same dynamic he had with, uh, with Picard. Right. Which is why I thought that when Q was on Deep Space Nine, it didn't quite work. Because he tried to treat Cisco the same way you treat Picard, and their personalities just aren't the same. So Q's dynamic was a little off on Deep Space Nine, I thought. Right. But here I kind of liked it, and I liked him showing him the past, saying, you know, this is why you think that you can't lose, because you beat death once. Yeah. I, I dug that. Right. Yeah, and, and the idea that this would be the challenge that Q is playing down to Kirk is perfect, really. I think that's perfect. Right. If you're, if you're going to do something with Kirk, the idea of there always being a way out, there isn't a no-win situation, is something that you didn't see called out in the TV series, but you definitely saw that in, of course, Wrath of Khan and, right. and other movies. Right. So that was cool. Yeah. And I really liked the, and you know, you you were talking about the stakes. I really like that Q's sticking his nose into something that technically he's not supposed to. He's going to make it look like he's doing it just for, to be mischievous or whatever. But in reality, he has a motive to, to help. So, so it appears so far. Right, which is the way he always is. It, it always feels... Always? You know, well, not always, when he's done right. Right, which it is looks, the exception, it, not the rule. Right. Well, I think in even the first couple episodes he was in, it was done right. Are you uh, in where encounter no at encounter at Farpoint? Yeah, what he yeah, was doing right? I don't think he was doing right. I thought he was he was trying to you know make you know, they were they were being too sure of themselves or whatever and and kind of putting them in their place. I thought it was okay. I liked it. Yeah, it was okay, but I I, don't, I didn't get a warm fuzzy feeling at all from Q and uh, Farpoint. Right. Encountered Firepoint. Well, I think yeah. in some of the later ones, yes. I mean, especially the one where he became human. I thought that was a really good episode. When he becomes human, yes. When he gave Riker, Riker's power, maybe not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But 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 anyways, I like – and when he, when he made him go see the Borg, you know, even though you could now, argue that <clears> – Now, that was very bad. Very bad, Q. Very bad. But it made for some exciting episodes. Right. But also you could also see the argument that that the Borg were coming anyways, and he was trying to give them a, a heads up. Well, but okay. <laughs> I mean, especially now that, we, now that there's so much expanded stuff that, that they, they've either already been here before that incident or were on the outskirts of the Federation space even before Kirk and or before Picard was sent out there. Right. I mean, it, didn't one supposedly end up crashing on Earth or something? In, well, yeah. Prior that, to Archer's time or something. Well, that was because of the whole first contact thing. Yeah. But anyways, but my point is is that yes, it looks like Q did something really bad by uh, you know, making the Borg Getting the Borg's attention, but in another way you could look at it where he actually kind of helped out the Federation by, you know, kind of giving them a, a small taste. 
Well, how much worse would it have been if we didn't even know the Borg even existed? And well, what if we would have had several hundred years of uh, advancement in technology before we had to come up against them? Yeah, but who's to say we would have? Because they've already been here once, and Seven of Nine was already kidnapped. Well, <laughs> but that, that was supposedly because we had uh, Federation research people or something. What was that supposed okay, to be? So they were already on their way. So Q <clears throat> gave us the head notice, even if it was just a season or two. I thought the theory was always that Q brought them too quickly, before we were ready, before we were meant to come up against the board. If you don't watch any Voyager, then yes, that would be that would be what you would have to think. But if you watch Voyager and you see that a 25-year-old 7 of 9 has been with the Borg for 10 or 15 years, and this is taking place only 5 or 6 years after Encounter at Farpoint, I mean, uh, um, Wolf 359, then, then none of that holds up. Because 7 of 9 would already be with the Collective for a good 5 or 6 years. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just saying, it depends on how you look at it. He either helped them out or screwed them over. Well, I will, I will definitely say that based on Next Gen and many things that Guinan had said, and even First Contact, they were brought into contact too soon with the Federation. But then that made him a more challenging foe, didn't it? Yes, I love the Borg. They're my faves. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a good one. Um, when you see Robot Chicken made up as uh, a Borg, you know you have struck a cultural chord. So, Kobayashi is Japanese for small wood? I did not know that. Well, this comic says it, which seems like small wood. Okay, interesting. Didn't know that. Just kind of wondering, what's the Maru part, then? And I uh, hear you clicking. Are you looking no, up? No, I'm, I might look it up now. Yeah. So... So I, I was just kind of surprised about that. Also kind of interesting how, I mean, Sulu's of Japanese descent, right? Yeah. He, he so, never... right. So I, but although Ahura is a linguist, I mean, she's a linguistic expert, so I guess how, that's how she got to it. But uh, I suppose, uh, I suppose it makes sense that somebody would have spotted that. One of those two, anyway. So did you like that part of the story? Yeah, actually, I kind of did. Because if anything, I mean, if Q was trying to, I don't know what Q's bigger game is yet. But I do know that if he's trying to get to Kirk, going through the no-win situation is a great way to do it. And then what is more quintessentially no-win situation than the Kobayashi Maru? So I like that. I like that whole, that whole thing where that's what Q's test is for this new Kirk. Right. And that Kirk. Dies. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't get to cheat. He does not get to cheat. But Q brings him back. So, hello. He ends up surviving anyway. Kind of funny. Kind of right. weird. No, nah, it was good, and I like. You know, you said you didn't like it, but I, I like Q sitting in the chair and just bantering with Kirk. I, th- I thought that worked well. Oh, I I didn't say that I didn't like the Q side of the equation. You don't like I think him. I think everything Q has said so far, whether it be with Picard or with Kirk, is spot on. I just don't get as much of an interesting vibe as Kirk is interacting with him. 
Right. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Just saying. So, again, uh, I think the artwork was pretty good, but still, more of the uh, weird background. Right. Which is not realistic in most scenes at all. So, is it the same artist? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Although uh, many of the faces are good, they look realistic. Um, I will say that the style, how they've done some of the shadings and stuff, just again remind me of uh, Paint by Numbers, <laughs> where they're kind of, you know, not subtle. Right. So it'll be pretty obvious patches of slightly different Caucasian skin color as they're drawing people. And uh, they do look realistic, but there's that that little artistic thing they're doing with some of the colors, which just remind me of uh, Paint by Numbers. Sorry. I still like it. not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's what it reminds me of. Right. And as far as as far as the artistic depictions of the characters, I think they nailed John Delancey. I think he looks fantastic. I completely agree. There's a spot towards the middle where Q is behind Kirk, yep. and he's like whispering his, in his ear almost, and that looks like Delancey, right? Big time. I mean, they got his facial expressions and everything. Exactly. Yes, that was one of the the, the frames I like the best too. Right. And good ones uh, with him and Picard, too, at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, and Picard's face uh, when he's angry, uh, I thought that was really good. Yeah. I, I kind of like the last one where, well, it's a little over the top, though, where uh, where Picard's going, Q, no! And he's like, has his arm outstretched and stuff. Yeah. I, I, think, like it's a, I think it's a little overboard. <laughs> um, I mean, what? come on, Picard. I, since when can you have you ever been able to stop him? I mean, really. If he wants to go, he wants to go. But, but it looks good. I mean, that that looks like uh, Patrick Stewart. Quite, quite good job. Yep, like it. And then my last comment is: I'm kind of tired of seeing people on the hull of the ship having little chats. Nah. <laughs> I mean, this is not even the first time Kirk's been out there talking because he did that, you know, just a few issues ago with. Uh, What's his name? The guy that was the embodiment of the Enterprise? Oh, right. Yeah, okay, so that was a little different, though. That's the one where sickbay walls all, all vanished? Right. Is that the one? Yep. Yeah. But didn't they end up on the on the hole, or was it just um, looked like they were on there? I thought they were actually on the hole at one point. Were they? I, I don't remember that, but I do remember that the sickbay kind of dissolved around them. Right. And they were looking down at the planet or whatever. Right. And I know that you know there's a co- there's several episodes of Next Generation where Q ends up on the hole. Yep, at, at least one that I can think of. Yep, the one with the female Q. Ah, right. It's something Q likes to do. Who knows? I want some privacy. Right. All right. Anything else? I have one comment. This is the last one. When the Enterprise is being hit by the Klingons, there's no kind of flashings or no indication at all of shields. I mean, it looks like the weapons are directly impacting the hull. And that's from the very beginning, that's through the whole thing, until the Enterprise finally blows up. And then that just got me thinking, you know, one thing I thought was really cool 
was in Next Gen, and maybe they did it in the in the Star Trek movies too. But the flashing of the shields, so you actually saw when somebody was trying to shoot the shields, um, you'd see that it was like a round egg type thing that's right. around the ship, and you would actually see the shape of it when when beams hit it and things like that. I always thought that was really cool, but not here. I mean, there's there's no acknowledgement visually anyway of shields that that I saw. And then I was thinking, is that the way they did it with the uh, with the two J.J. Abrams films, too? Right. So they're not acknowledging – I mean, they may say shields, but they're definitely visually not acknowledging it at all. Or the shields are really close to close the hull. Close to the hull. That was the other possibility. But, I mean, it's like – I don't know. I mean, are they dumbing it down? I don't know. Are they saying that it's that close to the hull? Maybe, but – I don't know. There's just no visual confirmation of that. It would make more sense if it's close to the hull. Yeah. Then you would just create this big giant egg Bubble. around around the ship. Well, and it would make more sense, like if something hits the shield, that your ship would actually shake. I mean, if it if it was a big egg and you're just kind of in the, in the middle of it, a phaser hits the shield, it it's not going to really give any force to you, right? To, to the ship I, I agree, but I just have one phrase for you, and you know what it is. Inertial dampeners? Damn right. <laughs> if inertial dampeners are what they're supposed to be, it should counteract those uh, those blasts. But then it wouldn't look cool. I know it wouldn't look cool, but think about it. Somebody hits you from the side with a few photon torpedoes and really shakes the ship, moves it even. If you don't have inertial dampeners, you're going to be a stain on the wall. So um, I thought that's why they had inertial dampeners. Anyway, Right. But uh, it just wouldn't look as cool. It wouldn't look cool. You wouldn't have the shaky cam going on. I agree. On. I agree. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, good point about the, um, the phasers hitting the hole. Yeah. And and really, I should go back and watch the uh, the second movie uh, as Admiral Marcus is mercilessly pounding the Enterprise. But I think it's quite possible I would see the same kind of thing. Yeah, you do. It just yeah. hits. It looks like it hits the hole, and and they right. shake all inside. Right. Which again, I I say that's just dumbing it down, but maybe you know, that's maybe in my opinion. It's because that's not what they do in Star Wars, Ken. <laughs> yeah, right. Which love Star Wars, uh, and they kept things simple. For fine, they keep it right. simple. I mean, like I've said before, I think there were times in Next Gen where they just got too technical. I mean, they just they were they would pull out explanation of things. Which were like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> Jordy, what are you talking about? It's like, I don't know. Techno babble. Anyway. At least they avoid that on uh, the reboot movies. Anyway. Yeah, they don't do a lot of techno babble anymore. No, no, they don't. End of an era. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right, anything else? That's it. That's all I'd say. All right, well, we'll wrap up. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll not be finishing this story, but we will have Q. Because we're going to do uh, Unlimited by Marvel, issue number 7 and 8. Yes, and I've begun reading 7. That's the Q Trelane. The Q Trelane right? thing, that's right. Yeah, I remember reading that one when it came out. Right. 
so there's a lot of uh, a lot of cue going on, at least for the review lately. So, which is not a bad thing. No, it isn't. And Trelane, I like Trelane. Yes, he, he he seems to be he seems to be Trelane always struck me as more of a um, menace than Q. Then Q. Now Q Q's a menace, but you said yourself there's been stories where he's actually trying to do good. Now, mind you, I've only got one episode to go by, and I think maybe there was a comic book reread that had Trelane in it. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a lot of experience with Trelane, not like you. But there was never an indication that he was ever doing anything good. No. He was a spoiled little brat. Exactly. Pulling wings off a fly. If if you have some time, uh, read, or or I think they even have an audiobook of Q Squared by Peter David. I actually have that. I just okay. haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, it, it, the audiobook's a bridge, so it's only like three hours long, maybe not even that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's still pretty good. It's it's a good little story about um, Q and Trelane's interaction, and according to Peter David, what their relationship is. So right, which is interesting. Yeah. So if you have a couple hours to spare, maybe give it a listen to before we do right. the next episode. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, then we'll close up and be back next week. Sounds great. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.